0: When the world is ruled by violence and the soul of mankind fades, the children's path shall be darkened by the shadows of the neon maniacs.
1: 6, Cimarron and the Subway.
2: Welcome to episode 6 of In the Shadows of the Neon Maniacs. On our previous episode, we discussed the production shutdown. This week, we'll take a look at Cimarron Productions, the trailer house company that resurrected the neon maniacs back to life. And we'll also talk to producers Chris Arnold and Bob Farina about the history of Cimarron, And that will lead us into the subway sequence of the film.
0: Hey there, I am Sean Farina. My dad, Bob Farina, was one of the producers of Neon Maniacs, uh, along with his partner, Chris Arnold, who founded Cimarron together. You know, my whole life, there was this movie that was just kind of a joke in our house, this this one bad horror movie that my dad made, as he described it. My only real connection to it, aside from him kind of, you know, flippantly mentioning it every once in a while, was that uh, I knew it involved a severed arm and a crossbow because he had those props and I have them now. And uh, there's this one great picture of, it's like four or five of the maniacs kind of like grouped around my dad, menacing him. With their, with their various weapons. And that was just kind of it. Like, I knew this movie existed, that my dad took his name off of it because he thought it was bad. And then when I was in college, the Anchor Bay DVD came out. And I was like, oh, wow, I can actually finally watch this movie. So bought the DVD, and it was the first time I watched it was when my folks were coming to visit well, it was my sophomore year of college, and we uh, they walked into my dorm room, and uh, I'd also bought the poster, and I had that hanging up on the wall. And so I point to the poster and say, uh, you know, hey, look at that. And, you know, he laughed, of course. And I said, so what would be the only thing worse than me having that poster? And he said, well, if my name was on it. And I said, no, uh, if I had the DVD and was going to have to sit you down to watch it with us. And so that's exactly what we did. And it was funny watching with him and watching him watching me watch it because he's not really a horror guy. There are, like, a few select horror flicks that he connects with. The Exorcist, because he's Catholic. The Fog, which he just likes for some reason. Like, Rosemary's Baby. Like, the more subtle stuff. But he's not a horror guy, so, like, he's never been able to get... Until I started kind of sharing with him how I see the film, and how the horror community sees the film, and you know what's what's actually good about it, what's enjoyable about it, that he's kind of realizing what its value is to the community and to you know horror in general.
1: The origins of Cimarron Productions.
3: Hi, my name is Brian Leonard. I was the associate producer on the film Neon Maniacs when I was working for Cimarron Productions back in uh, Hollywood. Cimarron was a company that made movie trailers and featurettes and behind the scenes, radio spots, TV spots. We did this as, as a side, I don't, I don't call it a goof. I mean, we, we did it to you know, try to make a, a film, you know, save a film really. Yeah, we weren't making movies. We were making movie trailers. Chris and Bob Farina were the two owners of Cimarron.
4: I'm Bob Farina, one of the producers of Neon Maniacs.
5: I'm Chris Arnold. I was one of the partners of Cimarron Productions, which was the company that came in to uh, put the Neon Maniacs together after the initial production had fallen apart. Chris had been a trailer editor, Bob had been an exec at Warner Brothers, and they decided to go out on their own in the late 70s. Bob was at Warner Brothers. He was at the trailer department, and I was at Kaleidoscope. And then I left Kaleidoscope, and I thought I was going to be done with trailers. And then Bob called me one day with Blood Brothers and said, could we find a place to cut, uh, recut this trailer over the weekend?
4: It was a film called Blood Brothers, Richard Deere. And I saw the trailer. Sid Gaddis showed me the trailer. And jokingly, I said, I could do a better job than this trailer. That's why I called you.
5: And I I told Bob at the time that I didn't want to, that my fear was that uh, my old boss at Kaleidoscope would think that I was trying to, you know, torpedo his business and steal his clients. Remember? And so Bob said, well, we'll keep this totally under wraps. Nobody needs to know that you cut this trailer. And I said, good. And uh, so uh, we cut that trailer. Then we cut a trailer for A Little Romance. It was the first movie Diane Lane ever was in. She was 13 years old at the time. It was a children's romance. But, But work was coming hot and heavy after a little romance, we did Ashanti. And uh, then we did, then we did what? Oh, I remember the other movie. Abba. Abba know. the movie. Top of the movie. Yeah. Our bosses or Bob's bosses at, uh, at Warner Brothers, you know, would they wouldn't give us their high profile movies. They gave us the movies that they thought were never going to really do anything. But one day, Sid Gannis, who was Bob's boss at uh, Warner Brothers, called Bob into his office and Bob came in and sat down and Sid got up and went and shut the door and said, you're not leaving this office until I know who's cutting these trailers. Do You remember that? Yes.
4: That's, that's a I, true story. I don't remember. I, I sat there, told Sid, did I cut them? Didn't believe me.
5: <laughs> <laughs> he,
4: he knew better than that.
5: Bob didn't want to go against what he would promised me, which was that he would never give my name up. So then Bob called me and said, well, we're gonna to have to come out of the closet. At that time, we had done probably four or five different things for Warner Brothers under an assumed name. They never knew who.
4: If I remember, there was one night that really solidified everything. That was the night that Musso and Franks over a couple of martinis. We sat there yeah. at the bar and decided, to do Cimarron.
5: Right. I don't really remember what the very first Cimarron movie was.
4: Strange Brew.
1: Direct from SCTV, it's Bob and Doug McKenzie spilling across the screen this summer in Strange Brew.
2: When did you guys start getting like really big movies?
5: I think the thing that opened the door to bigger movies for us when we did Excalibur. Excalibur... Uh, was a movie which uh, was actually kind of a troubled movie in a way. John Borman, um, I remember seeing the movie, and I didn't think Excalibur was a very good movie at all, and primarily because he cast his daughter in it as as Guinevere, I think, and he cast his friends in it, and he cast you know these a lot of people who couldn't act. The only real actor he had in it was Nicole Williamson playing Merlin. And, uh, and uh, with the accents and the poor acting, I decided that the only trailer we could really make for the movie was a trailer that wouldn't have any dialogue in it at all. Sure. And, uh, and I said that to our client. I said, um, I, I don't want to show these actors acting because they're, they're terrible. And uh, so she said, well, I'm going to get John Borman on the phone and you tell him. <laughs> and, and so uh, I I got on my salesman hat and said, uh, what I would like to do is a, a, a trailer that is all images and music and just boom, you know, go for it that way. And he said, um, I like that idea. And I think I know the music. And I said, What? and he said, It's this piece of music which uh you probably don't know. And he said, It's Carmina Barana. And I said, No, I don't know this one. And then I went back and I listened to it and I thought, Boy, that's our music. And that was the first time Carmina Barana was ever used in a trailer, and I think to this day that is probably the piece of music that has been used most in trailers ever since. Forged of splendor and magic,
0: where future meets past, flesh meets steel, and the only fear is the pain of love. Excalibur, sword of power, sword of
5: kings. I think it was after Excalibur that uh, Warner Brothers started giving us big movies. We did Tron. We didn't do a lot of things for Disney, but Tron was one of them.
6: When Kevin Flynn, a computer genius, unlocks the dimension beneath the screen, he becomes a prisoner in a world of his own making
5: the world of Tron. When it came to Mad Max 2, not only were we hired to do the trailer, but they, asked, they told us, because Mad Max 1, we didn't do the trailer for Mad Max 1. We did the
4: foreign, trailer. the
5: foreign trailer. And a company called AIP, I don't know if you remember the American International, they had the domestic rights to it. Uh, we sold it as an action picture. They sold it as a sci-fi picture. And it really wasn't a side fi no. picture. Wasn't close. But it was a and it was a stupid trailer that they made. And the movie made absolutely no money here in America. But it's and not then, a money And fine. then we got hired by Johnny Friedkin and Warner Brothers to do the international trailer. And that's when we sold the shit out of it as an action movie. And the trailer was gangbusters, and the movie went through the roof internationally. And uh we got all of the blame for it. I yeah, they said, exactly. we never, you know, this movie was dead in the water before you guys came along. And that the director, the um, George Miller and his partner, Kennedy.
4: Byron Kennedy. Byron, Byron
5: Kennedy came to see us. They were so, you know, pleased about it. And they said, we're going to make Mad Max 2 and we want you guys on this. So Warner Brothers grabbed up the, the, the rights to Mad Max 2 immediately and hired us to do everything, and I mean everything. They said, for for a starter, we need a title for this film because we can't sell Mad Max 2 in America because Mad Max 1 was a disaster. And so uh, we came up with Road here.
4: The key line was when Mel Gibson said, if you want to get out of here, talk to me.
6: You want to get out of here? You talk to me.
0: The Road Warrior. Pray that he's out there,
5: somewhere. Tim uh, said that he had this friend, Joe Mangine, who had a feature film that had fallen on hard times.
7: My name is Timothy Snell and I edited Neon Maniacs. Joe, he had this movie that he had been working with this guy on, I guess Mackler and this writer. And this thing was set up at this company Sync. And I remember being brought in, and I remember going up there and meeting everybody. Uh, I was the editor, you know, you're like the last person hired. And all of a sudden it, it had shut down. and. I didn't know. I thought, "Gee, you know I'll go take this to Chris." It's all, it, it seemed like everything was in operation. Everything was rolling, everything was set up, locations, everything secured. They just didn't have the money. So I took it up to Chris, he looked at the script, he looked at the stuff, he met some people.
5: The story that I heard at that time was that Mackler's producer. Partners ran off with the money?
4: They ran off with the money. That's what I heard.
5: Yeah, that's what I heard.
4: The money was gone. Yeah. So was the producers.
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they had budgeted it at what, 1.9 or something like that?
4: Some ridiculous amount of money.
5: Uh,
4: Steve Magna probably lost a lot of money.
5: You think so? Personally? Oh yeah.
4: I'm sure he did. Because when the production came to us, there was very little money left. Very little.
7: And it was really a rescue mission. I mean, this thing, like it was dead in the water. It was, it it stopped and I took it to Bob and Chris and Chris liked it. I don't know if Bob ever did. He might've warmed up to it. I don't know. I certainly don't hold him to anything. He doesn't have to like it. It was just, it was a money prospect. And I think Chris enjoyed toying around with the idea of working on on an actual movie. and I liked it because it gave me something to do. The opening
1: narration.
7: I thought there was an opening where there was text with the thing and then the text on the screen that went along. And what we did was we just faded the dialogue in. We faded in the picture under the voiceover, the premonition, right? The, I thought there was, there was another version of it where there was text on the screen, not like Star Wars, but you know, they may have removed that. We may have removed that.
2: Yeah, Tim said he thinks he remembered you guys putting text to it at one point, and then you took it out.
4: I think we tried it, decided it was more trouble than it was worth. It worked much better um, without the text.
2: Who did the voiceover in the beginning?
4: Do you remember who the voiceover was? No, if you played it, the voiceover it sounds me, like it sounds um, like Dave Gilbert.
5: Because I mean, if I did it, I I knew all my narrators that I used. Oh, that's Dave Gilbert. Dave Gilbert. Dave Gilbert, an old old friend of mine, passed away not so long ago.
4: Dave Gilbert did a lot of trailers for us. Yeah, a lot of trailers.
5: Well, Dave and I were both at Kaleidoscope, and that. That during that trailer company, Dave did oh, a, a lot of things. Then, then I got him involved in. You know, he used to love. I remember he used to say I was the best nar- narrator director he'd ever had, because I, I, I created this voice for him, this dark and uh, kind of hard voice,
4: mysterious voice,
5: mysterious. mysterious voice. Before that, he had a very good kind of uh intelligent documentary type of voice and i got him to do this dramatic stuff and that that created a whole new career for him in a way but at the time we were doing a lot of horror movies uh when we first started out at cimarron we got kind of pigeonholed as
4: the,
5: as the horror movie king so he oh, yeah. he was the voice of uh, the fabulous texas chainsaw massacre That's shoot that 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 we did where we made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre look like Excalibur.
0: <laughs> Some tales are told, then soon forgotten. But a legend
6: is forever. Face. Texas Chainsaw Massacre
0: Three. I don't remember if I ever met Joseph Mangine. I was running around on the set of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three teaser trailer, which he directed. So I have to imagine at some point I like you know bumped into him, and shook his hand or something because you know I was the boss's kid. But uh, I don't recall ever meeting him. The I know a few other folks who were involved in it. A uh, lady named uh jan arcaro was did the makeup and hair on it um her husband vince arcaro was also was the line producer on it uh they're old family friends and they were the ones who told me that uh reminded me of that it was bobby Byrne who shot it um they had some really cool photos too which i i'd love to share i need to scan those uh because they look pretty good but there's a great one of of my aunt jan doing Leatherface's hair and for the life of them, neither of them remember who played Leatherface, so that remains a mystery, aside from we know that it was not cane um, Hodder. So this is funny. The lake was so shallow that they actually had to take the chainsaw apart. It was only, like, four feet deep. Like, nobody had bothered to go and, like, try to measure that. So they had to take it apart for, like, the first shot where it's coming out of the water. uh just the bar with, like, the chain... Tied or held to it by a diver who's you know laid out flat so that you can't see them, and then it cuts to the wider shot where it's you know further out of the water where they can actually have the whole chainsaw there with the uh Lady of the lake's hand coming out
4: Sean and I went to see Texas chainsaw massacre a couple years ago. They played the trailer before the movie. People stood up and applauded
5: Oh really oh
4: yeah yeah people love that trailer.
5: It was a great one. We did a number of live shoot trailers in those days. Well, the client at New Line Cinema really loved uh, the stuff we did. We did What was the other live shoot we did for, for Harpster? We
4: did, we did Jay, Jason Dakes Manhattan in New York. Doing that trailer in New York was a lot of fun.
5: I don't think I was there.
4: Nope, you weren't there. I did that one. I was there for that. Jason, oh, Dakes, yeah, I Jason that. Dakes Manhattan was with the Frank Sinatra music playing.
5: It was along the walkway Long underneath walk. the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Bridge. Bridge. right. And what, he's standing there looking but
4: out? Just his back. All you can see is his back. Yeah. To, we're, we're looking at the uh, Manhattan skyline. With Frank Sinatra playing. Yeah, yeah. That was fabulous. Yeah. There was no chance people would know that was a horror film.
5: Right, exactly. Yeah. We were... Look,
4: look, look more like a love story. Yeah.
8: Jason Takes Manhattan. Now, New York has a new problem.
5: Yeah, we did Friday the Thirteenth, like three, four, yeah. five, six, and seven, and then we did Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm am Street, Street. Everything after Part One, we didn't do Part One, but we did That's everything one We didn't
4: do. We did them all the rest.
5: Street Part Three. Freddy's just around the corner. You know, there was a time when horror movies were, um, were, were really getting a lot of bad press, and it looked like horror movies were going to be gone. You know. On the ABC News Magazine,
9: 2020. Are your kids renting a movie this weekend? <laughs> Horror films like these are the most popular choice. Graphic orgies of blood and violence. They watch 15 murders in an hour and a half. Children mesmerized.
2: I like the, gore.
9: (laughs) But are they harmless? It's always a female victim, and is generally in a sexual context. With reports that life may now be imitating art, Bob Brown shows you what the kids are watching. VCR Horrors.
5: And we came along and started advertising horror movies with a little twist on them. And that was that we, we always found something humorous in it. We were the people who, you know, really recognized that Freddy was kind of a comedy character in a way. And there, there were a lot of very fun things you could do with Freddy. And we did the same thing with uh, a movie called House.
0: This is a house where no one should live. house enter at your own risk uh,
5: we made that kind of fun and uh, so we kind of brought the idea of fun back to a genre that was beginning to be um everybody said we were that that horror movies were uh taking advantage of women that the horror you know they were they were uh, basically anti-feminine and and that women were being victimized. And, and, uh, and so uh, we kind of took the curse off that. And uh, consequently, we were hired for just about every horror movie there was out there until finally Bob had to say, we're not doing it anymore.
4: <laughs> I was not a big fan of horror movies. First couple of times, Chris and I were in a screening room. I'd make the projectionist, put the lights on. Oh, yeah, do you I do that? remember that. We'd watch all the
5: films with I the know. lights up. Neither Bob or I liked horror movies, but we got well, stuck with time that. Time
4: after time, they gave us horror films.
5: Right. They would so, give us one more horror film, the and we'd go into the screening room, room, and we'd say, up. you can run the film, but leave the lead lights <laughs> up. <laughs> you know, putting the fun back in these movies was really the way we looked at it. Um, mm-hmm. And th- mm-hmm. this movie it, it fell, fell into that category, you know, that, what well, the reason we liked it was we thought that the idea of all these crazy wacky monsters was fun. Yeah. But I'm thinking we probably shot ninety percent of it, just like Bob said.
1: Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Megan Navarro. I wrote the article "Underseen Monster Movie: Neon Maniacs and Its Troubled Production" from the it came from the '80s column on BloodyDisgusting.com. I always have a fascination about 80s horror and the way that it doesn't seem to with any other decade where there's so much history I don't know if it's the candor of the era or just the kind of wild west era for horror but there's so much in that decade that you learn about having such troubled productions I think of like spookies which had such a tumultuous production or You know, another favorite being Waxwork, where the whole finale came about because they literally ran out of money and how that changes film. And obviously filmmaking is problem solving. But the way that these movies still come together at the end, despite, you know, in the case of Neon Maniacs, that's a three month shutdown that they had due to financial issues and then had to come back with a different cast and crew in in some respects. It's just deeply fascinating to me. To learn about that and learn about that history, and then how that reflects the final product is just endlessly fascinating. Um, you know, Oliver Wood was originally the DP, um, and he's obviously done incredible work since The born Identity, Face Off. So then, you know, he couldn't come back, which meant that a first-time director, director, featured director, is now doing doubling as DP. Dennis Fisher writes in Fangoria, The approximately $1.5 million production got off to a smooth start on its six-week shooting schedule when suddenly financial problems led to a three-month shutdown. For Carducci, it was a nerve-wracking, frustrating period. For director Mangine, it meant that his cinematographer, Oliver Wood, would not be coming back and that Mangine would have to do double duty as director-cinematographer once the film resumed.
6: I'm Alan Apone, makeup effects supervisor for... Neon Maniacs. Uh, I'm Mike Spatola, makeup artist. One of the things that really excited me about doing this movie was I had seen this movie, a movie called Alphabet City, which I really, really like. Well, Oliver Wood shot that. One of the things I loved about Alphabet City was the cinematography was like Mm -hmm. incredible. And then I find out that Oliver Wood's gonna be the cinematographer for Neon Maniacs. Right. You know, that was like a huge plus, you know, and I, I remember talking to Mike and, and to Doug White about it, about, you know, how excited it would be, because I mean, since a lot of it's being done at night and it's really um, stylized, that Oliver was gonna kill it. You know, he was just gonna make it look amazing. And I think he did And a lot uh, uh, but every time Oliver would <laughs> try to do something, Joe would go, no, let's do this. Yeah, you because know, he would, you know. Because he was a you know, cinematographer. <laughs> you know, and Oliver would be like, oh, Joan, you're directing just let me do this and uh, sometimes Oliver got to do stuff other times he didn't but Oliver I've gone on I did Miami he came and did Miami Vice he did the two seasons of Miami Vice I did with him and then I just worked with him a couple of years ago on the new Ben-Hur that we shot in Rome so and I stay in touch with Ollie but uh, you know that's you know that's one of the big pluses for me, um, also in outside of working with Michael uh, on uh, doing this movie.
2: Did He end up leaving after the first half. Do you remember?
6: Yeah, yeah when when it shut down. Yeah, Joe, I think I think Joe shot the. I think <laughs> Joe just shot the second half.
7: My name is Timothy Snell, and I edited Neon Maniacs. Supposedly this guy, Oliver Wood, who's pretty known, well-known DP now, at the time was the operator. So Joe was trying, Joe was going nuts because he felt he should just be operating too, but that would just have been too much. But yeah, Joe liked to light. He was a fastidious lighter. I mean, the, the other movies I worked with him with, his, his favorite way to light was PARs with tinfoil. And that's what he would like to do. And he would mold the tin foil to get just the right beam. And then he would just, you know, he was very uh, painterly. He wasn't one to just put up a a bank of lights to just blast the set. And that movie probably could have used even more of that. Because there's probably in this movie a little bit too much. You probably see a little bit more than you should. I haven't seen it again in a while, so I don't know. But my recollection of it is that there's probably stuff that we probably should have knocked the keys down and had it a little bit more dramatic lighting.
3: Hi, my name's Brian Leonard. I was the associate producer on the film Neon Maniacs. Yeah, uh, Oliver had to leave. Uh, and I don't know, I think you know that was some disagreements or money or what, I honestly don't remember. Oliver was a nice guy, I do remember that. Cause like I said, I worked with him on other things. I would say that when, especially when Joe took over the DP job, I, I, I would have to say and I remember it as that Chris Arnold was doing some directing, you know, and it's just the way Chris is. And he was, he was good, you know, he, know, he, he was very uh, good at what he did and everything, you know, but he, he would have done that then as having that second set of eyes and Joe having to worry about, you know, lights and camera and all that stuff.
2: Yeah, make, it make it makes sense. Yeah, cuz it's a it's a pretty big task to do both,
3: especially at that speed, you know, the speed we were going to try to get things done. Again, I think I think when when Chris kind of took over more, you know, he did take over some more directing, I think Joe wasn't happy, but Joe really wanted to get the film finished, you know, so he was he was really a team player as far as man, whatever it's gonna take to get this, you know, we, we're all just chipping in. And, and, Joe, and Joe directed, I mean, I'm not saying that Chris took over, you know, cause he, he didn't, but it was, it was much more of a team effort than at the top, especially when Joe had to go back behind the camera.
2: Do you know how long you guys were working on it? Like how long you guys shot for once you guys started up the second half?
3: I'm trying to, it was either two straight weeks or three. I, I just remember, again, that's what I mentioned to you on our phone call, you know, that my wife said I look like the walking dead because literally I was working like 22 hours a day. I would come home and literally hop in the bed for an hour, get up, take a shower and go back to work. And we did it for at least two weeks, Stephen, and maybe closer to three, but I know it was at least two weeks. Well, they shot a lot more than a normal movie would shoot obviously you know they were we were moving it along you know there were there were no 20 takes but uh, yeah you got to move it along you're not you're not doing a page and a half like a real film you know you're we were probably doing 5 to 10 pages easy you know probably more if I, if i had to think i don't even remember uh you know Ilani was like 16 i guess at the time and uh she was the one that you could kind of see you know had something a little special, a little spark of something that could happen. And it did for her. Of course, basic instinct being the biggest. But the the, the funny story with her was when we, you know, like I said, she was 16 and we went to San Francisco to shoot and we stayed in this really cheap motel. And it was kind of a no-tell motel. And it was like, you know, the joke was, you know, the rooms could rent for the hour. But we took it all over, you know, we had the whole crew and the cast there and everything who did travel. And um, we used some locals too. But she got the big room with her mother and the, and. but it turned out that it had the the heart-shaped bed and the, or, or the round bed and the heart-shaped tub and all that kind of stuff. So it was a little, we didn't know that ahead of time. So it was kind of funny, you know, the local location person found it. And then when we put her in there, I was like, ooh. <laughs> but, it was all good. You know, she's a good sport.
6: <laughs> I remember looking at the hotel they were putting us in the, for the first time. Uh, that was pretty disgusting.
7: And let's see. I remember when we were in San Francisco ordering a pizza de- delivered to the subway. Um, <laughs> I,
5: remember
7: I remember that. That, that was good yeah. pizza, too. Yeah. I mean, we were only there for like, what, 48 hours, if that?
6: something like that yeah yeah
7: it was it was short but yeah craft service was really terrible that night and so we ordered a pizza down to delivered to us
6: yeah. down in the subway <laughs> and is that the movie where we did the disguise makeup on you alan no that was different that was on hollywood boulevard that was uh we did that on the brock hudson story oh okay <laughs> i know that starting to all blends together it does i mean this is so long ago
1: Maniac number eight, Mohawk.
8: This is Charles Edward Cohen, Mohawk from the movie Neon Maniacs. I tell you what, it was the time of my life. It it was the funnest. um, I was living in in California and I I think it was called Angel. I I can't remember the name of the casting company. It was Angel something, I think. And I had been working on the set as a security guard on Highway to Heaven with Michael Landon, and and, and I got this call like, hey, you want to be in a movie? And I was like, yeah. And But, you know, I never in a million years did I know that I was going to be unrecognizable to, to my family and friends <laughs> after being in three hours of makeup every day. <laughs> and it was um yeah it was like 75 bucks a day it was three hours in makeup every day they had the mask for mohawk was originally made for another actor but it ended up fitting my face um so they didn't have to make a whole lot of changes but i think I was probably on the receiving end of the begin of of the second half of that when it restarted back. I believe that yeah, I was the only uh I, I I might not have been the original Mohawk, but they didn't use any of the footage of the old neon I mean of the old Mohawk if they did have an old or it sounds like they did, but. Because when I looked at the movie, I was like, wow, they uh, it was me the whole time. So um, I guess you, you could say I was the original Mohawk in the movie, but, but the mask was fitted for a different person in the beginning, I believe, if that all makes sense. <laughs>
2: you shot the train stuff also?
3: Yeah. Yeah. We went to San Francisco and shot uh, on the train when they were closed. Yeah. You know, when we're shooting up there, we basically took over this car and we just shoot. We just ride the car back and forth and back and forth and just shoot and shoot and shoot. You know, the same thing with the empty platform, you know, when they were running around, you notice there's, I don't think there's, I don't think there's one extra in there, except the guy in the booth that watches the guy, you know, all the people, all the maniacs jump over and, run through and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, so it was just, you know, I think we shot, just mainly that was what we shot in San Francisco, just the BART stuff. So that was probably just a couple of nights.
2: Did you but, do the, the bus scene too then? Was that still up in San Francisco?
3: I don't think the bus, you know, I can't, I couldn't, when I saw that, I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember if that was, I thought that was Hollywood which makes more sense to me because I really think all we did up there was BART. You know, mm-hmm. because back then, LA didn't have a uh, metro. You know?
8: See, I remember another scene is when I I jumped over the, yeah, one of them turn things. I remember jumping o- I remember we filmed that over and over again too with me jumping over the, the
6: entrance.
2: How's our timing?
6: Our timing is just great. Now we have more time to be alone
2: alone's an understatement
10: i'm dr rebecca mckendry my core area of research is in horror film history i also did not really pay much attention to the subway scene before and the absolute lunacy of it and how for a hot minute at the top of the subway scene it shifts to horror comedy like full horror comedy as these like mutant maniacs are trying to figure out how to get through the subway turnstile it goes full like splat stick screwball comedy for a moment and then quickly shifts back to you know supernatural slashers so kind of the tonal um conflict that this film became throughout its uh journey
9: Jim Branscom, Cinematic Void. Yeah, so Natalie and Steven are hanging out, I guess, like, just kind of blowing off steam, and, like, they're down in the BART subway system, the famous San Francisco subway system. But it's a really good setup, because they're, you know, why, you know, they're not even thinking of these, the neon maniacs coming to get them.
6: No, seriously, Steven,
11: I... I feel very vulnerable.
6: I'll
3: tell you a secret. I do too.
10: And it's a great conversation because it's right. That vulnerability that you feel standing on a subway platform by yourself is ridiculous um, because it's surrounded by places people could be hiding and dangers and everything. It was a good scene. It gets silly. um, I mean, but it's the idea that we're constantly buying into these supernatural mutants now riding a subway, you know, but that lead in is really good and makes you feel kind of. It's off-putting.
12: it's them. Let's get out of here.
10: On the train.
9: But because of their amazing tracking skills or whatever, you know, Steven and Allie get on that train and it's all empty and there's Neon Maniacs on there and they're just like kind of going through the cart, like each car. And it's just like, it's a really intense kind of horror scene because... They don't have anywhere to go. They're stuck on that train. What I remember best was like the scene in the subway
8: when I throw my arrow at at uh, the two leading Alan and I can't remember her name. The uh, spear that I threw, it was on a cable. So all I had to do was go through the actions of it, and then the cable did all the rest of the work. <laughs>
9: and just the way it kind of cuts back and forth and then like they take out the conductor so the train's never ending, like just keeps on running. It's just like, it's just a solid kind of horror scene.
0: My name is Steven Romano. I am the creative director of Avon Press, which is a division of Vinegar Syndrome Publishing. What I love about it is that once it gets on the subway, then it just cuts to one of the maniacs and he's driving the subway and you realize, oh my God, these guys are everywhere. They can do anything they want. And, it, and it's a great scene. It's a great little chase scene and it's, it's well shot and it feels, it feels like it has a lot of momentum to it. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Shit. They did get
2: on.
9: I knew they did.
2: Come on, let's get to engineer.
9: Come on, run. The,
2: the driver
3: of the train in San Francisco who gets electrocuted through the back of the window, that's actually Tim Snell, the editor. That's our, our sim, one of our Cimarron guys too. That was his cameo in the movie. But uh, I mean, they even used, I
7: think they were down mo- money and they decided to use me for, for a scene, which yeah. I think is hilarious. The train, yeah, that they put. I think, I'm trying to remember what they put on my skin, but they actually did it with that stuff that, that smokes. Uh, what's it called? They, you find it in dry ice. They were actually putting that against, my skin, but I think they had something to protect my skin, but just for so long. I mean, it's probably stupid. It probably wasn't even OSHA or whatever, you know? But I guess I was a guy in the subway car, the subway to end that sequence.
12: My name is Catherine Ballin and um, I was the production designer on um, Neon Maniacs. Obviously in the story, the film takes place in San Francisco but we shot mostly in Los Angeles, okay. So there was a point, a second unit going with very, very small crew uh, and they went to San Francisco. We were not a part of it because it was mostly a location like the picture that comes back all the time of the San Fran, (laughs) you know, the iconic San San Francisco bridge or Bay Bridge, uh, it was probably, uh, that was shot there and probably all the scene uh, in the BART uh, subway were shot over there with a small second unit and the director except some special effects scene that we did on stage as an insert like when when one of the maniacs the electric guy uh, is riding uh, is he's having a joy ride on the subway and somebody grabbed him by the head that was an insert in a set on stage and so we had a whole series at the, the end of the
11: film with all these inserts. Brian Sauer, Pure Cinema Podcast. Um, but yeah, the set pieces, man. I mean, that, that the subway sequence. And I love, again, reading that article where you, the, I think it was the director that was talking about the Warriors being a big influence. And it is really very obvious when I think about it. It is kind of like, if I was going to sell it to somebody now, I'd be like, yeah, the Warriors with monsters is is a way to hook somebody. It's I don't think it's exactly that movie, but it you know, it has those elements and that subway sequence feels very like something that could have happened in the warriors if there were monsters, you know? The subway scene, it's like
2: fluid. It's really fast paced when he throws like the spear and then they escape from the uh the train and then it moves onto a bus, you know? It that is a very warriors yeah. Um. Set piece, like from one thing to the other, you know, they're because they are they are constantly escaping, you know, and then the worries, yeah, it is a horror film, if you really think about it, because it's like they are the good guys. And then it's like all these faceless gang. They aren't faceless. They all have like really cool personas, but they are constantly being hunted down from one thing to the next, you know?
11: Yeah, with no, ex. no, no discussion. It's just like we're coming to get you because we've been told you guys killed Cyrus, you know and so you're dead and yeah that's it is similar in that sense is that they're coming from all sides they're coming at all times i do love that transition from the from the subway to the bus come on let us in hey let us in take off you have change
9: but when they get off the train and they run and they get on the bus that's where they kind of shoot they go back on melrose avenue they shot up and down melrose avenue they shot kind of near marchmont village and then all the way over towards like kind of near where the beverly center is like they're a couple blocks away from that where they round the corner to get on the bus because i found that spot i think it's like off of third street if i think about it when i was like looking for locations but when they get on the bus and they think everything's okay and
13: Steven, is this ever going to end?
4: Yes. It's going to be all right.
6: Yeah, but why are they after me?
11: I don't know. And there's that great shot with the window where you can almost feel it coming, and boom, it happens. And you're like, okay, well played. Well played, movie. Uh, It doesn't really make sense that you would do this, but I don't care at this point. I really love that that happens. (laughs)
9: Yeah, get the arm chopped off, and the bus driver's like, no smoking. Like, it's just, it's this impeccably well-done action scene.
8: Hey, you damn kid! Can't you read? No smoking. Norris. And I, I remember ri- riding on the on the side of the bus, being strapped on there, and and I remember getting my arm chopped off. And I think there was a scene where this guy was walking his dog, and the dog found the arm on
13: the ground and. The guy's like, hold his dog away from it.
6: That's it. We got to move out of this neighborhood, Elmo.
13: My name is Mario Valdez, and I played Samurai Warrior and Neon Maniacs. I was also filming in Griffith Park as well in the beginning. And then we went over to San Francisco. And specifically, I remember San Francisco just stood in my mind because that was such a great scene you know, chasing everybody down there. And yeah, it was cool. It was a really cool time. It was very monotonous. But yeah, we had a, we were just running back and forth all, all night. And that was the night when I went back to my whole room. I was so bloody exhausted. And when my head hit the pillow, I just passed out, I mean, immediately. And woke up eight hours later and I was refreshed. And then we hit the hit the road again. I get claustrophobic kind of easily and I was starting to develop a pretty bad skin rash. I went to the dermatologist and the dermatologist says, you just can't, you can't be doing this. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to destroy your skin. So it was my, it was my ultimatum. Unfortunately it was sad uh, because I really wanted to finish the project and my doctor was like, absolutely not. So I don't know what they put on my face as an adhesive. I don't know if that's changed now, but it was grueling. I remember I couldn't eat. I had to, I had to, I had to take protein drinks uh, throughout the whole time. And I, I never worked so hard in my life. I mean, when I crashed out at night, it was, it was unbelievable. I just, I just crashed out immediately, but yeah, it, it was it was a it was a great experience. I'm really really fortunate that I was able to be part of the project.
2: That wraps up this episode of In the Shadows and the Neon Maniacs. I would like to thank Sean Farina for putting together and recording the interview with Chris Arnold and Bob Farina. I would also like to thank listener Simon Barber for hooking me up with the lead to find Mohawk. Our opening and closing theme music is by Shane McKinney. This show is written, produced, and edited by your host, Stephen Scarlatta. And please, if you haven't already, subscribe and please rate this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or whatever you're listening to so it can help find more listeners like yourselves. Thank you so much again for listening, and until next week, stay out of the shadows.